You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 30, Risk and Reward. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in the summer of 1796. Napoleon and the Army of Italy had almost entirely expelled the Austrians from northern Italy. This region had been part of the Habsburg sphere for centuries, but all that remained of that once extensive network of influence was one city, Mantua. Unfortunately for the French, Mantua would be quite a tough nut to crack. It was more a stronghold than a city, protected by strong natural defenses and state-of-the-art fortifications. Over 12,000 Austrian troops manned the ramparts, with perhaps as many as 500 cannon. The Army of Italy had stormed some tough positions in its sweep across the Po River Valley, but nothing they'd seen so far even came close to the forbidding walls of Mantua. For the last few episodes, our story has had no single geographic focal point. The Army of Italy simply moved too quickly for us to dwell on any one specific location. But we're now in a different phase of the campaign. Everything now hinges on Mantua and this will be the case for the better part of a year. So what made this one position so important? Well, as I'm sure most of you intuitively understand, if the French hoped to control northern Italy, it would be pretty helpful to control the strongest fortress in the region. But Mantua had a much greater strategic significance. The garrison of the city was simply huge, 12,000 men. That's bigger than some entire divisions of the Army of Italy. As long as they remained defiant inside Mantua, those 12,000 men were a threat to Napoleon. Even as he turned his attention north to face new threats from the Austrians, he would always have to keep one eye on Mantua. At any moment, some or all of those 12,000 men could launch a breakout, and Bonaparte would suddenly have a sizable enemy force in his rear. As long as Mantua held out, Napoleon would have to hedge against this possibility with every move he made. This imperative to maintain the watch on Mantua put Napoleon on the defensive for the first time. This was not a natural fit for Bonaparte. He was an aggressive commander, both by disposition and in philosophy. As we'll see, even in this situation, he won't sit back and passively wait for the enemy to come to him. Even on the defensive, Napoleon was an energetic and aggressive strategist. 
Mantua was even more important to the Austrians. On a purely symbolic level, the first Italian campaign had been a massive humiliation. Never before in living memory had the Habsburg grip on northern Italy looked so weak. Mantua was the most potent symbol of Austrian military power in the region. As long as the Habsburg banners fluttered over the ramparts of the city, Austria could plausibly claim its power over northern Italy was not yet extinguished. From a purely military standpoint, if an Austrian field army could link up with the Mantua garrison, it could expect to add several thousand men to its ranks. If they could coordinate an offensive against Bonaparte with a breakout from the city, they might catch the French in a serious bind, perhaps even encircle the Army of Italy. There was also the question of resupply. Mantua was well-stocked with food and ammunition. The city was designed to withstand a siege, and contained huge stockpiles of every conceivable necessity. The garrison was in no immediate danger of being starved out. However, every day they passed under siege, those stockpiles got a little smaller. Mantua was on a very long clock, but that clock was slowly, inevitably, ticking down to suffering, starvation, and surrender. If an Austrian field army could break through to the garrison with fresh supplies, even if only for a few hours, they might reset that clock. It was inevitable that Mantua would become the focus of the war in Italy for both sides over the coming months. After General Beaulieu's final defeat at the Battle of Borghetto in late May, the French launched a small probing attack on the city. Finding no success, they began preparations for a siege, which began in earnest in July. The soldiers assigned to the besieging force must have felt like they drew the short straw. While their comrades garrisoned the picturesque, prosperous villages of Lombardy, or marched south on easy campaigns of plunder, the 5,000 men outside Mantua lived in muddy trenches, dug into the pungent, malaria-infested swamps bordering the city. Many fell ill. Napoleon assigned General Serrier to this all-important mission. A solid choice. The old veteran had served on both sides of countless sieges in his decades-long career. However, he also came down with malaria and soon became so sick that he had to be evacuated to France. Just as the French were settling in outside Mantua, Rumors of major troop movements started filtering down from the Austrian Alps. In mid-June, French scouts captured an Austrian courier, carrying news of Field Marshal Count Dagobert von Wurmser's appointment to lead a counteroffensive aimed at the relief of Mantua. Napoleon had expected such a move for weeks. Now he had confirmation that it was finally in the works and began his preparations. First, he ordered an assault on Mantua. The odds were against success, but the garrison would be a serious thorn in his side in the coming campaign. Bonaparte had to at least make an effort to remove the threat before another Austrian field army arrived in Italy. It would be a disservice to describe this assault simply as a failure. It was a complete farce. The French attempted a surprise attack by boat across one of the lakes outside the city. But they misjudged the complicated wetland ecosystem. 
The water level of the lake dropped suddenly during the crossing, and the assault boats were left stranded high and dry. Mantua stood as formidable as ever. Napoleon was left with no choice but to leave an unconquered enemy force of 12,000 in his rear and gather his units to face the oncoming Austrian offensive. He left 5,000 men under Serrier to guard Mantua and marched north. It had taken time for Wurmser to make his preparations, but he was nearly ready to strike. The old field marshal brought a force of around 25,000 men with him from the Rhineland. This was the army he'd led on several successful campaigns in that theater of the war. They were joined by the remnants of Beaulieu's battered army, and reinforcements pulled from elsewhere in the Habsburg realms, bringing the total strength of the Austrian offensive to around 55,000 men. Napoleon had received reinforcements as well, but could only call upon a field army of around 45,000. The Army of Italy was outnumbered, and another 5,000 men from their ranks were required to maintain the siege lines at Mantua. The French would be operating at a considerable disadvantage. Wurmser split his army into two main elements. 18,000 Austrians under Field Marshal Peter Kwasdanovich would push south along the western shore of Lake Garda. This would threaten the Army of Italy's lines of supply and communication. Meanwhile, Wurmser himself would take the main body of roughly 24,000 men due south, straight towards Mantua. Before I get any angry emails, no, that doesn't add up to 55,000. The remainder of the Austrian army was either unfit for duty or dispatched on small secondary missions, which ultimately would have little impact on the coming campaign, so I won't bog you down in the details. Wurmser's plan was to relieve the garrison of Mantua, then converge with Kwasdanovich's column, and, with luck, crush the army of Italy between them. It was a decent strategy, uncomplicated, bold, and aggressive, not unlike the field marshal himself. Napoleon was no fool. There were only so many passes between the Po Valley and the far side of the Alps, and he made sure to garrison all of them. When Wurmser's offensive finally began in late July, the French had the advantage of terrain, but Austrian numbers were simply overwhelming. Wurmser's column made contact with the French on July 29th, and sent the Republicans almost immediately into a full retreat. To the west, Kwasdanovich's column was met by General Ogero's division, around 5,000 strong. Ogero and his men fought brilliantly, but they were outnumbered more than three to one. The best they could manage was a fighting retreat. General Messena would later recall that he'd never seen the Austrians fight with such rage. Napoleon was momentarily taken aback by the size and ferocity of the Austrian offensive. He wrote, quote, Perhaps we shall recover ourselves, but I must make serious preparations for a defeat. End quote. Without question, the Habsburgs had won the first round of the campaign. But Napoleon knew his outnumbered army of Italy held a crucial advantage. His units were concentrated, and the Austrians were not. He saw an opportunity to drive a wedge between the two enemy columns, then take them on separately, much as he had in Piedmont at the beginning of the campaign. Taken altogether, Wurmser's army outnumbered the Army of Italy, 
but the Army of Italy outnumbered each of his columns taken individually. If Napoleon could concentrate all of his forces against an isolated enemy, the French would have a temporary numerical advantage, and might be able to knock the wind out of this offensive before it gained momentum. With luck, Napoleon believed he might even destroy an enemy column entirely. As with most of Napoleon's plans, speed would be crucial. At their current rate of advance, there would only be a window of a few days before the Austrian columns would be close enough to support one another. But if there was one thing Napoleon knew about the Army of Italy, it was that they could outmarch the Austrians. With careful planning and execution, a few days would be all he needed. The other issue was manpower. Even if he managed to keep the Austrian columns separated, Napoleon would have to stretch his army to the breaking point to achieve the concentration of forces necessary for a decisive battle. And he worried even that might not be enough. And so, on July 30th, he decided to take a risk and fully commit to this plan of action. Bonaparte ordered the 5,000 troops besieging Mantua to destroy anything they couldn't carry and march east. He would deal with whatever mischief the garrison got up to once he defeated Wurmser. If the garrison linked up with the Austrian field army before Bonaparte had his chance to fight this decisive battle, there would be hell to pay. But he desperately needed those 5,000 men, and so he decided to bet on his enemies being too slow and indecisive to take advantage. It was a huge gamble. But in his experience, the Austrians rarely failed to deliver on sluggishness. His first task was to check the Austrian advance, stop the two main columns, and, if at all possible, push them further apart. Napoleon picked Wurmser's column as his target. He had to be completely sure Kwasdanovich's column was too far away to help when the decisive blow came, or else the whole plan might backfire spectacularly. To this end, he took André Massena's division, borrowed around 5,000 more from other divisions, and then marched northwest to engage Kwasdanovich. He sent a smaller force under Ogero to impede Wurmser's progress as best they could. The ensuing engagements are confusing to read about today, largely because they were confusing for the men who actually took part at the time. This Austrian offensive had barely begun, and both armies were moving fast, so neither side had any decent reconnaissance on the composition or disposition of the enemy. Napoleon was leading his men into combat to buy time and space for the future decisive battle. There hadn't been a lot of planning on the French side. For their part, the Austrians were not expecting a counterattack so soon, and were not well prepared. Early on August 1st, Napoleon's force began making contact with units from Kwasdanovich's column. In two days of chaotic skirmishing, the unprepared Austrian advance guard was pushed back. Finally, on the afternoon of August 2nd, it dawned on Kwasdanovich that something was amiss. This was not the rear guard of a retreating army. Bonaparte was up to something. Kwasdanovich ordered a pause in the advance until he could figure out exactly what. The next day, he ordered one of his brigades to make a probing attack on the village of Lonato. There, they found an entire French brigade. 
the Austrians attacked at dawn and captured the village after fierce fighting. Little did they realize they had just probed a hornet's nest. The bulk of Napoleon's 20,000 men were only a few hours' march away, and already massing for an attack. What followed was nearly 24 hours of confused fighting along a wide front. Neither Kwasdanovich nor Napoleon was totally sure of the contours of his opponent's position, so they swung at each other blindly, like two boxers fighting in the dark. The French had the element of surprise, and Napoleon and the nimble army of Italy excelled at this type of improvisational warfare. The French soon gained the upper hand. At one point in the battle, Napoleon sensed a crucial opportunity, but had no available reserves on hand to exploit it. In desperation, he ordered one of his aides, Brigadier General Jean-Andoche Junot, to lead a squadron of the guides, his new bodyguard unit, to make the decisive charge. They performed brilliantly. Napoleon must have been pleased with the tactical results because this would become the primary battlefield role for his personal guard for the rest of his career, and one of his signature tactics. But success came at a price. As the guides engaged the Austrian cavalry in hand-to-hand combat, the always reckless General Junot took a saber cut directly to the head. Either this was a glancing blow, or Junot had a guardian angel, because he actually survived but it would be quite some time before he was ready to return to duty. This was a real loss for Napoleon. Not only was Junot a capable officer, he was a friend. They'd been together since the very beginning of Napoleon's rise at Toulon. Sadly, many of Junot's contemporaries would later point to this head wound at Lonato as the beginning of a slow but steady decline in the young general's mental health and cognitive abilities he would still show flashes of the potential Napoleon recognized at Toulon, but generally speaking, as the years wore on, he grew increasingly erratic and unreliable. Junot came to depend on alcohol to manage his mental and physical pain, which contributed to his decline, which drove him deeper into the bottle. Along with the drinking came gambling, risky affairs with married women, and sudden fits of rage. But Napoleon felt deep loyalty and affection for all of his friends who had been with him from the early days. Junot was no exception. I can't blame him for indulging Junot for so long. Remember, when Napoleon was imprisoned after Thermidor and potentially facing execution, it was Junot who had quite seriously offered to break him out. Friends like that are rare indeed. It would be nearly a decade until Napoleon finally lost patience with his former assistant, after Junot had a tempestuous romance with Caroline, Napoleon's younger sister. When he found out, Bonaparte flew into one of his rare, legendary rages, and bellowed at his old friend, quote, Have you sworn an oath to live and die a fool? End quote. Junot was too far gone to get the message. His mood swings grew ever more violent, and his behavior ever more outrageous. Most of Napoleon's close companions from those early days would eventually attain the elite rank of Marshal of France, but not Junot. He was finally forced into long-overdue retirement in 1813. He died under somewhat ambiguous circumstances, 
perhaps unsurprisingly, many sources suggest suicide. According to one account, he threw a party, ate, drank, and danced with his guests, then put on his general's uniform and jumped off the balcony. However it happened, he was just shy of his 42nd birthday. With the benefit of modern medicine, we can pretty safely guess that this fateful saber blow dealt Junot a severe brain injury. These can lead to profound long-term complications, including mood swings, depression, mania, impulsivity, and cognitive decline. There's also the possibility of post-traumatic stress disorder, although the degree to which we can extrapolate our understanding of that affliction back to people in Napoleon's day is controversial. So, why am I telling you all this? For one thing, I find Junot's story interesting, albeit tragic. And, as our story continues, Junot will make a lot more sense if you bear in mind that he's grappling with the long-term effects of this wound. But more importantly, I thought it presented a good opportunity to reflect on the terrible human costs of these battles we've been discussing. Junot entered our story as a bright, brave, idealistic young man of 21, straight from his father's farm. He barely knew life outside the army. Like all of Napoleon's inner circle, Junot would share in the spoils of victory, but none of the trappings of imperial excess could replace what he'd lost. His service destroyed him. Accounts of Junot from his latter years paint a portrait of a tortured, miserable crank, alienated from even his closest friends and colleagues, and no longer fully in control of his own thoughts or actions. He died a rich man with a noble title, but ultimately he was just another of the hundreds of thousands of young Frenchmen of his generation who were fed into the ravenous maw of war and chewed to pieces. I bring up Junot because he's someone we've gotten to know a bit on the show, and was close to our protagonist. But remember, his is just one of nearly four million stories of individual people who paid the price for the geopolitical machinations of the great powers in this era. General Junot's fate was certainly tragic, but his experience was far from the worst among those millions. The story of the French Revolution, the Wars of the Republic, and the rise of Napoleon is an exciting one. At least I hope it is. It's easy to get caught up in the triumphs and glories, and forget the tragedies. Even the smallest battle we've talked about together was the last day on earth for at least a few young men. Real people with friends and families, who had their futures snuffed out, often quite horribly. Many more were left with severe disabilities or lingering physical or mental pain. I'll stop myself before the whole rest of the episode turns into a sermon, so I'll just close by saying that quite a bit of this show is about war. Death, suffering, and tragedy are a part of war, and so I think it's only right that we spare at least the occasional thought for those aspects, even if they are a bit somber. Anyway. We left the narrative with Napoleon's victory at Lenato. In the wee hours of August 4th, Kwasdanovich felt compelled to order a general retreat. Unfortunately for the Austrians, this maneuver was badly coordinated. A rear guard of around 2,000 men found themselves isolated and were forced to surrender. On top of the loss of Junot, Lenato was a ugly, messy affair from a tactical standpoint. 
but Napoleon came away with a convincing victory. Kwasdanovich lost around 5,000 men, killed, wounded, or captured, along with much of his artillery, compared to only around 2,000 French casualties. But the strategic implications were much more important than the casualty lists. Kwasdanovich was forced to retreat, and many of his units suffered heavy losses and would need time to regroup. Napoleon had thrown off the timetable of the Austrian advance by several days at the very least, and pushed the enemy's two main columns dangerously far apart. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. While most of the Army of Italy was engaged against Kwasdanovich around Lenato, General Ogero fought a simultaneous defensive battle against Wurmser's column, near the village of Castiglione. In this engagement, General Ogero, the loudmouth brawler from the Paris slums, gave one of the finest performances of his career. He nearly succeeded in surrounding and destroying Wurmser's entire advance guard of 4,000 men, then held out all day against ferocious Austrian counterattacks. Wurmser threw around 20,000 men at Ogero's division of 10,000, but the French fought them to a standstill. Napoleon had been hoping to delay Wurmser, but Ogero had managed to actually push him back a few miles. Of course, even at this moment of undeniable triumph, Ogero couldn't help but embellish his role. Within a few years, he would be taking credit for the entire campaign. I think the fact that Napoleon let him get away with that kind of talk is a testament to how much he respected Ogero's performance that day. Napoleon's maneuvers of August 1st through 4th had succeeded beyond his expectations. The Army of Italy had seized the initiative and driven a crucial wedge between the two Austrian columns. Napoleon had succeeded in creating the window he needed to fight a decisive battle against Wurmser, without having to worry about Kwasdanovich swooping in to save the day. It had been very close, and could easily have gone the other way. At one point on August 3rd, the two Austrian columns had been separated by less than five miles, or eight kilometers. After the tough fight against Ogero, Wurmser arrayed his column in a strong defensive position, anchored on an area of rocky high ground outside the village of Solferino. Ironically, the coming battle would be named after the town of Castiglione, which is about eight kilometers or five miles from the battlefield. The Battle of Solferino was fought on much the same ground, but in 1859. It would go down in history as the greatest victory of Emperor Napoleon III, nephew of our Napoleon. Anyway, everything was now in place for Napoleon's planned decisive battle against Wurmser, and so he raced his men south from Lenato, 
hoping to launch his confrontation with Wurmser the very next day. The Austrians were spoiling for a fight as well. From Wurmser's perspective, his men were on good ground, and the strategic situation was still quite favorable to Austria. As the rear elements of his column arrived, Wurmser's force swelled to around 25,000 men. From what he could tell, he was only slightly outnumbered by Napoleon, an imbalance that would be negated by the natural defensive advantage of the terrain. However, Wurmser was missing two massively important pieces of information. First, he was unaware of the magnitude of Napoleon's victory at Lenato. He believed Kwasdanovich's column of 18,000 men was only a day or so's march away, and would arrive imminently in Napoleon's rear if he attempted an attack. This would give the Austrians an opportunity to crush the Army of Italy between their two columns, just as Wurmser had envisioned in his plans. In fact, Kwasdanovich had been knocked back several days' march, much too far away to offer support any time soon, and even if he had been, many of his units were in no condition. Wurmser didn't know it, but if he stood against Bonaparte, he would be doing so alone. Second, he was also unaware that the French could expect to receive support from an unexpected direction. Wurmser had not yet made contact with the Mantua garrison, and so had not been informed that the French siege had been lifted. In planning for this offensive, Wurmser had written off the 5,000 Republican troops maintaining the siege lines outside the city taking it for granted that they would remain static in their swampy trenches until the contest between the two field armies was decided. In fact, those 5,000 troops were very much in play. On August 4th, as Wurmser prepared his positions around Solferino, the former besiegers of Mantua were just completing one of the Army of Italy's signature lightning marches, and had advanced undetected to within a day's march of the rear of Wurmser's position. So, as the two commanders arranged their armies for battle, each did so believing he had an ace up his sleeve. Napoleon was right, Wurmser was wrong. I'd like to make a particular note of that last miscalculation. This was a failure of imagination. Wurmser simply never contemplated the possibility that the French might abandon their siege so easily. I think some of this goes back to something we touched on last episode. The Austrians were singularly focused on Mantua. As I've probably explained ad nauseum, this wasn't without good reason. It's hard to overstate the importance of this one strategic location. Many European military campaigns of the 18th century had played out much the way the Austrian High Command had imagined this campaign an invading army besieging some stronghold, then the defender moving his forces in an attempt to break the siege. If they were successful in relieving the garrison, the invaders fell back. If the siege held, the garrison eventually ran out of supplies and surrendered, and the province fell to the invaders. It was a slow, deliberate style of warfare. At any given time, a huge proportion of both sides' armies would be static, the comparatively small field armies often danced around each other for months without a major battle, as the invading army struggled to keep the lines of supply to their besieging forces open, and the defending army sought to cut them off and force them to retreat. 
This is how Frederick the Great waged many of his famous campaigns. Everything Field Marshal Wurmser and the planners back in Vienna knew about war suggested the struggle for Mantua would follow this dynamic. These men were not stupid. Their equivalents in every Western country probably would have agreed with this assessment. However, Napoleon was not playing by that old Frederican rulebook. As you'll recall from previous episodes, France's political revolution also ignited a military revolution. For decades, radical military theorists and army reformers had hypothesized that a modern, progressive state, ruled by a strong central authority, might be able to create a new type of army. These theoretical new armies would be built around highly motivated citizen soldiers, and led by professional officers who approached war like a science. The French revolutionaries embraced this vision. In practice, the ragged, undisciplined armies of the Republic were a far cry from the idealized, enlightened crusaders found in the tomes of theory. But whatever their faults, the soldiers of the Revolution really did herald a new age in warfare. This military revolution would change almost every aspect of war, from the most mundane details like uniforms and rations, all the way up to the most fundamental overarching questions like how societies related to their militaries, and how governments approached their geostrategic goals. For reasons we've discussed in previous episodes, the revolutionary French army excelled at promoting forward-thinking young officers who understood this type of warfare. As he was already beginning to demonstrate, Napoleon was the pinnacle of that trend. Even the greatest generals of the age were only just beginning to understand that the old rules no longer applied, but Napoleon had an almost immediate intuitive grasp of this new world. So, to take this back where we started, Wurmser and Vienna conceptualized this counterattack into northern Italy with an outdated model. Static fortified strongholds like Mantua have an intrinsic strategic importance, always have and always will. But after the revolution, armies became larger, more mobile, and deadlier. The result was a shift in significance. In Napoleonic warfare, large field armies were the most potent force on the battlefield, not strong fortresses. Back when he was still only a major, Napoleon himself put it this way, quote, It is an axiom of military art that he who remains in his entrenchments will be defeated. Practice and theory are in agreement on this point. End quote. So, from the very beginning of his career, Napoleon already understood and embraced this principle. Obviously, he still wanted Mantua, but this outlook meant he was willing to take a chance and turn his attention away from the city completely to maintain focus on Wurmser's field army. This way of thinking was so alien to an old warhorse like Wurmser that he hadn't even considered the possibility. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Early on the morning of August 5th, Napoleon launched the decisive battle he had risked so much to set up. He opened with yet another gamble, an assault on the Solferino Heights, the strongest part of Wurmser's position, to be followed up by a feigned retreat. The tactic of the feigned retreat has been in use since ancient times. To borrow a term from the finance world, it is high risk, high reward. In a feigned retreat, the attacking force assaults an enemy position, then apparently loses its nerve and falls back in disorder. This entices the defenders to pursue what appears to be a defeated enemy. Once the defenders are drawn out of their positions into the pursuit, the retreating attackers surprise them by suddenly turning around to fight. If executed properly, it is a devastating tactic which can completely turn the tables on a strong defensive position. But here's where the risk comes in. If executed poorly, a feigned retreat can very easily turn into a real one. Coordinating thousands of running men, all stopping on a dime, then falling into fighting formation, required discipline and good leadership. The instinct to keep running like hell when pursued by armed attackers is powerful even for trained soldiers. As things turned out at Castiglione, Napoleon was right to trust his troops with such a risky maneuver. As the feigned retreat began, Wurmser ordered his men off the heights in pursuit. Not only that, he got greedy and actually ordered them to spread out in a flanking maneuver as they advanced. This was a smart move from Wurmser's perspective because it opened up the route on which he expected to find Kwasdanovich's reinforcements. But, as we know, Kwasdanovich was not coming, so the only practical effect was to thin out this part of the Austrian line, making them even more vulnerable to counterattack. Things were going even better than Napoleon had hoped. According to his plans, the feigned retreat would soon turn for their counterattack, pushing in to Wurmser's right flank. Then, with the Austrians focused on their right, the whole army would attack, pinning the Austrian army down in place. Then it would be time for that ace up his sleeve, the 5,000 men from Mantua, who would arrive behind Wurmser's left flank. As the Austrians scrambled to protect their flanks and avoid encirclement, Napoleon would deliver the coup de grace, an assault force of elite grenadiers, to push right through the weakened center. The Austrians would be helpless as the French pinned them down from the front and advanced behind each flank. Wurmser would be completely enveloped and forced to surrender or face destruction. A perfect battle. It was a brilliant plan, perhaps a little overambitious, but so far everything was falling into place. But that tantalizing prospect of a textbook double envelopment battle only lasted a few moments. Suddenly, the sound of muskets could be heard from the other side of the battlefield. The former besiegers of Mantua had launched their assault on the rear of Wurmser's left flank. Napoleon's perfect battle depended on timing, and they had jumped the gun. The Austrians were indeed surprised, and their position was suddenly in serious jeopardy. But it was too early in the battle for this maneuver to have its full, devastating effect— Napoleon didn't want this attack to begin until he had forced Wurmser to commit most of his army to the center and right flank. That way, there would be no Austrian units available to stop the attack on the left, 
With the attack arriving early, Wurmser found it relatively easy to redeploy his forces to face the threat. This was merely a worrying development for the Austrians, not a masterstroke that sealed their defeat. The premature attack also led Wurmser to put the brakes on his pursuit of the feigned retreat on his other flank. Napoleon's men did their job and turned around for a sudden counterattack, just as planned, and they successfully pushed back their former pursuers. But Wurmser had given the order to halt, just in time to blunt the full, devastating effect of a true surprise counterattack. So, on both the left and right flanks, the Austrians had been surprised and pushed back. Wurmser had been fooled. His army had been forced out of their strong positions and were confused, demoralized, and taking heavy losses. The French had seized a clear advantage. But that slight error in timing had cost Napoleon his chance at the prized double envelopment battle. The Austrians were certainly facing defeat, but complete disaster was probably out of the question. Still, Wurmser was not beaten yet. The old field marshal eased himself into the saddle and personally led a series of cavalry charges, hoping to relieve some of the pressure on his embattled flanks, and maybe even distract the French long enough to seize the initiative. He and his troopers fought bravely, but it was too little too late to actually change the course of the battle. Napoleon personally rode along the line, urging every unit forward in a general attack. In yet another audacious move, he ordered his artillery forward to dislodge a particularly stubborn battery of Austrian guns. Artillery was incredibly vulnerable while it was in transit. To move within range of active enemy cannon, then take the time to unpack and set up, was a huge risk. But under the command of Napoleon's closest aide, Auguste de Marmont, the French gunners pulled it off. By now, particularly hard-hit Austrian units were fleeing the field in panic, indifferent to the protestations of their officers. French troops stormed the heights of Solferino. This was where Wurmser had planned on anchoring his defense, but by the time the battle actually reached this position, his units were shattered, and the French were right on their heels. With much of his army already running for their lives, and the French advancing on all sides, Wurmser had little choice but to make things official and order a general retreat. As the French broke through the disintegrating enemy lines, a unit of light cavalry overran the Austrian headquarters, just barely missing Wurmser and his staff. Castiglione was a devastating defeat for the Austrians, who had entered northern Italy with such confidence only a few weeks before. Of course, all things considered, the battle could have gone a lot worse for them. They had been saved from a double envelopment by the enemy's mistakes, not by the wisdom of their commanders or tenacity of their troops. A determined pursuit certainly would have wreaked havoc on the battered, disorganized Austrian army, inflicting even more casualties, taking prisoners, and capturing equipment. Fortunately for Wurmser, the Army of Italy was completely exhausted after nearly a week of non-stop marching and fighting. Bonaparte was only able to offer a token pursuit, which petered out after just three hours. Castiglione was a short battle. By nightfall on August 5th, Wurmser and his men were on the other side of the Mincio River. The casualty numbers are not very impressive either. 
The Army of Italy lost around 1,200 men, killed, wounded, or captured. The Austrians lost around 4,000, plus 20 cannon and large stockpiles of supplies. Both sides had lost more men during the confused lead-up to the battle than in the engagement itself. But victory is much more than a question of body counts, and, strategically speaking, Castiglione was a triumph. Wurmser began his offensive with tremendous advantages. His force was over 20% larger than Napoleon's, and that's without counting the garrison of Mantua, who might easily have played a role, if things had worked out differently. Wurmser threw away this advantage by dividing his army, and failing to keep its components close enough together to support one another. The Austrians also had a strategic advantage. Napoleon preferred to fight on the offensive, but the nature of the campaign forced him to defend. Worse, he had to contend with the threat of Mantua in his rear. Unfortunately for the Austrians, their units were simply too slow to maintain the initiative against a nimble Republican army led by a commander determined to seize it. Mantua was a problem for Napoleon, but Vienna had overestimated its importance. Its massive garrison had essentially no impact on Castiglione. In case you're curious, the Austrian troops inside Mantua actually did march out of the city after the siege was lifted. If they had managed to establish communication with Wurmser, they could quite easily have realized Napoleon's nightmare and marched on Castiglione, but they never managed to establish contact. This put the garrison in a bind. They had no idea what was going on. They could easily surmise that the siege had been lifted because an Austrian field army had entered Italy and was approaching Mantua, and they understood how important it would be to link up with such a force but it was simply too risky to make a decisive move without more information. The garrison was quite formidable behind the walls of the city, but if the French caught them out in open country, it would be a disaster. And so, the vaunted garrison of Mantua did little more than march around aimlessly in the immediate outskirts of the city. This wasn't an entirely pointless exercise. They used the opportunity to collect food and other supplies from the countryside. They didn't get much, but remember, every little bit counts in a siege. As we've discussed, an encircled city is always on a clock, slowly ticking down to starvation and surrender. If the French restarted the siege, every handful of bread would move Mantua's clock a few more milliseconds from midnight. They also ransacked the abandoned French siege lines. Per Napoleon's orders, the Republicans had taken all they could bring north, and systematically destroyed or buried anything else. But they were in a hurry and moving on short notice. There was only so much they could do, especially with heavy equipment, like siege artillery, which was too cumbersome to move and too sturdy to destroy. While the Army of Italy was busy at Castiglione, the garrison of Mantua set to work digging their cannon out of hastily filled-in trenches, and dragging them back to the city. Mantua wasn't exactly short on artillery, but denying these powerful guns to the French would give the Austrians an edge, if or when the siege began again. Once the news of Wurmser's defeat reached Mantua, the garrison scurried back behind the walls. Their performance during the offensive of late July and early August 1796 wasn't exactly glorious, but they had improved their position. 
Of course, from the perspective of Vermser's field army, Mantua had been entirely useless. Not only had they failed to engage the French, they hadn't even presented enough of a threat to draw a single enemy soldier away from Castiglione or Lenato. The struggle for Mantua would continue, but as France and Austria fought over the city, the combat in northern Italy continued to illustrate the dawn of a new age of warfare, an age in which large, static garrisons like Mantua's were anachronisms. Next time, we'll see Napoleon pursue Wurmser. Castiglione came as a shock to the Austrians, but they had come away with surprisingly few casualties, and would quickly regroup and be ready to fight again. We'll also continue to examine Bonaparte's development as a general. Even at this early juncture, the tactical and strategic ideas he would use to bring Europe to its knees were already taking form. Until then, thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.